Welcome to SNAP, survivors of narcissistic and abusive personalities. This educational recovery podcast is presented by Claremont Mental Health and Mandy Friedman, licensed professional clinical counsellor. This presentation contains vital information for survivors of abuse. Topics include the spectrum of abusive personalities, targets of abuse, abusive relationships, and survivors in recovery. We hope this information helps you gain solid footing and clarity as you navigate your road to recovery. I'm Mandy Friedman, licensed professional clinical counselor and clinically certified domestic violence counselor and the creator of SNAP, Survivors of Narcissistic and Abusive Personalities, which is an educational recovery program for survivors of narcissistic abuse. Today we're going to talk about eight rules for recovery. Number one, healthy people only. Healthy people only! We are savers and fixers and we're non-judgmental and we see ourselves as a work in progress. So we have no issue bringing people close to us who are a wreck, who are not healthy. And it doesn't mean that they never will be healthy. We're all a work in progress, that's true. The point is that you're in recovery and creating your bubble of health means removing toxic presence no matter what that toxic presence is. And if someone in your life is unwell and unhealthy and behaving that way, we need to change our relationship status with that person so that they don't have intimate access to us. It doesn't mean that they're never going to get better. It doesn't mean that they're a terrible person and that we don't love them. It just means that we can't have them around us all the time and we can't be involved in that on a regular basis because it stunts our own growth. Right, and it keeps us stuck and we wind up spending so much of our own time and attention and energy and emotion trying to help them fix them save them to get them healthier sharing with you sharing with them what you learn in therapy sharing with them things you learn from these videos and hey this could help you it's not your job and they are on their own life path so as an empathic survivor of abuse it's really really easy to collect and adopt people who need help we've got to stop that behavior Number two, self-care has to be a number one priority. It has to be. All the bit of toxic stress and trauma that you have endured has created medical problems within your body, whether you know about it or not yet. Trauma and abuse affects you physically and mentally. And we have to learn how to take care of ourselves and to create a lifestyle that allows us to be healthy. So self-care would mean going to the doctor, going to the dentist, perhaps taking walks regularly, exercising, um, having downtime where you don't have a bunch of stuff to do, so saying no to invitations and saying no to responsibilities in order to prioritize self-care. There are going to be people in your life that don't like this and they're going to push back when you say, I'm sorry, no, I can't do that because I have to do this other thing for myself. They might treat you like you're being selfish and self-centered. Who cares, right? This is about you becoming the you you've always meant to be, where you're healthy and happy. So self-care, you don't have a choice. You have to do it, all right? I hope I've impressed that upon you enough. Self-care is so important, number one priority for you. 
Number three, set and maintain boundaries. This is really hard for us. We're not used to setting boundaries, and the hardest part of setting boundaries is maintaining those boundaries. So learning to do that takes practice. But in order to perform our self-care, right, we're gonna have to set boundaries with people so that we have the time and the attention to devote to it. If you need help with boundary setting, there's a lot of videos on my YouTube channel that can help you with that. I also have webinars on lovefraud.com. There's also a book called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud. But we've got to learn to set them, you guys. Number four, say no without explaining. That's hard, you guys, I know. But here's what happens. When you explain your reasons as to why you're doing things, you're inviting a dialogue. But really, we're not asking the person's opinion. We're delivering information, right? So if I say to someone, yes, I did accept the invitation, but I woke up today, I, I'm not gonna be able to make it. Um, it's just better for me if I stay home today. Oh, really, well, why? Because, you know, we really thought you were coming, and so we thought, it, you know, we've been looking forward. Why? Why? Um, because that's what's better for me today. This is what I need to do for myself. That's it, right? And that should, then the person should, maybe they'll be a little upset, but hey, I get that. Whatever you need to do for you to be healthy and happy. When you explain your reasoning for things, it's like, well, I thought I could come, but then I didn't sleep well, and then I have anxiety this morning, and I, I, I was procrastinating last week because I had some stomach issues, and so I didn't get things finished, and now it's all piled up on me now, and I only have a certain amount of time because next week I have... People don't need to know that. It's no one's business. And then that invites them to make comments and offer suggestions that were completely unsolicited. Uh, and then they are also going to have the opportunity to persuade you to change your mind. So instead, when you say no about something, just say no. And you do it in a kind, warm way. Um, but, but you have these sort of like sound bites that you use that keep people from digging any further, which is because that's what's best for me. Things like that. Number five, simplify your life. This is hard, all of these are hard. When I say simplify your life, I mean if you've got three kids, perhaps this year we're not doing sports. While you're rebuilding, while you're, you're building and fortifying your bubble in recovery, perhaps running the children all over creation is something that is too stressful for you and for them. Or perhaps we pare it down so that they get and they get to pick one thing extracurricular that they do to make life easier. Um, don't volunteer for things. Take responsibility for things. Let's say, especially in long-term commitments, somebody says, "Hey, this school year on Tuesdays, can you carpool all the kids on Tuesdays?" Okay, that's a big commitment. Every Tuesday for the entire school year, you're in charge of getting all those kids to school. You see what I mean? Um, that doesn't simplify your life. Simplifying your life means not involving other people, not taking on more responsibility. If you are maintaining something, like if you're spending a lot of time um, keeping something working. For example, if you feel like that you're supposed to mow the grass once a week. Who taught you that? You can mow the grass less frequently. Um, 
someone else told me a story that their therapist said that they were um, they get so frustrated because the kids don't wash the dishes off before they put it in the dishwasher and then doing dishes winds up being this very you know stressful thing and the, the therapist gave them this best advice which was run the dishwasher twice Right? Okay, so simplify your life by saying no to responsibility, saying no to commitments, um, by, you know, removing the amount of running around that you're doing. Your meal planning, for example, could, could simplify your life so that you're not every day trying to figure out what you're going to feed everybody. Be creative in ways that you can simplify your life. Number six, trust your instincts. I know, I know, I know what you're thinking that you can't trust your own instincts because they've gotten all scrambled. You thought you loved and trusted this person or that person as it turns out you were wrong about them and they were misleading you and, and they were uh, manipulating you. I get it. We have a hard time trusting our own perceptions when we have been gaslit or someone's been gaslighting us for years of our life. We don't know what's up from down. But part of living in recovery from narcissistic abuse is learning to notice your instincts and trust them again because they're there and they are working. It's just they were working overtime for a long period of time, right? And then you were suppressing those feelings. So your instincts were going off, alarm bells were going off when you were in your abusive relationship. But as a coping tool, you masked those things and pushed them down. Right? But now we're going to learn how to identify them and utilize them to protect you. Your instincts are something that's very important. And we do tend to have very good instincts. It's just they were weaponized and used against us and it got all scrambled up. But as we recover, we start to regain connection with our instincts. So if you have a bad feeling about a people, a place, or environment, um, or an event, listen to your instincts. If you think that someone might have ulterior motives, maybe they do. Um, but it's just important, especially in developing new relationships, that if you're getting an uh-oh feeling, that you start to listen to those feelings. Number seven, get plenty of rest and sleep. <laughs> right? <laughs> especially if you have kids or a baby um, or a husband who snores or you have insomnia, it's really hard to do. However, you can examine your sleep hygiene. You can shift your schedule around. You can ask for help. Um, there are things you can do, changes you can make to enhance the quality of your rest and your sleep, including um, designating a certain time to you just resting. That on Sundays, for example, you don't do anything other than what needs to be done around the house. And you don't go over to other people's houses for dinner and hang out. You don't invite people over. On Sundays is a you day. That would be an example of prioritizing your sleep and your rest, is to just clear the way so that it could happen. I understand that a lot of us have a problem sleeping. I do too. Um, but because I'm blessed, I have enough room in my house that I have my own room and my husband snores, so that doesn't stop me anymore from sleeping, right? That was a tough decision, but I did it, and it works better for us now in the long run. Prioritizing sleep 
is so important in recovery because our brains are healing and new neural pathways are forming and the brain needs sleep in order to heal and to grow and to change back into the healthy version it needs to be. Number eight, practice mindfulness. Mindfulness is a helpful tool for the moments when you are struggling and you are especially struggling with some unhealthy thought patterns that are going on or you're having waves of grief or waves of anger or you're having withdrawal if you are trauma bonded to someone and you're longing for them and craving them mindfulness can really help keep you centered and grounded so that you don't act on those feelings and you don't act on those thoughts. We have to endure the thoughts and the feelings. Like I say, it's like a dirty diaper. You just got to sit in it. It sucks. I know. But mindfulness can help you in that moment find a better thought pattern for you, a thought path that is healthier. Or if you're really trying to practice mindfulness, we're trying to find our quiet mind and that's the space between the thoughts. And mindfulness sometimes is presented in a very uh, spiritual, meditative way. And I think there's a lot of value in that. However, I like to describe it in a neurobiological way and in a very practical sense, which is that <laughs> we've been taught in Western culture, I am my thoughts, which isn't true. Your thoughts are a byproduct of your brain functioning and the brain is here to help you navigate the world to stay alive to maybe procreate to find connection um, and to you know also make sure your body's working fine but thoughts are just like anything else that the brain does for you no more meaningful right our stream of consciousness is not who we are those are just thoughts who we are is our energy and our consciousness, our ability to observe our own thoughts. That's who you are, your being, your energy, your spirit, okay? And getting to the point where you realize that my thoughts aren't really that meaningful. I'm the one that chooses to assign so much weight and so much meaning to thoughts that I have. I could think about a purple dinosaur all day and be thinking, oh, eh, eh not really notice that that's what I'm thinking about, right? Purple dinosaur makes no sense. Why am I thinking about that all day? Or if you're anxious or traumatized, you're, why am I thinking about a purple dinosaur all day? There must be something wrong with me. What does that mean? That's you doing that, right? You could think about it and go, Ugh, that's meaningless. That doesn't help. Or you can really blow it up into something. So learning to choose which thoughts you pay attention to and how much meaning you give them is also a product of practicing mindfulness and it can really help you endure some of the most uncomfortable parts of this process of recovery. Okay, I hope this video was helpful. Hey, therapists need affirmation too. Please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching. Bye! If you like this podcast, subscribe and leave us a review. Find Mandy Friedman, LPCC, CCDVC on YouTube and Facebook. Join the SNAP Survivors of Narcissistic and Abusive Personalities Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at The Official Snap. Thanks for listening.